production. Rick Dovlin is a psychedelic-assisted psychotherapist as well as the founder and executive director of a non-profit pharmaceutical company known as MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. His research focuses on developing legal contexts for the safe use of psychedelics and marijuana, as well as prescription medicine for personal growth. Rick proposes a new cultural understanding of drugs based on our essential need for curing states of mental health that till now we have been unable to help. In this conversation, I explore the nuances of the drug debate. I ask how and whether the use of these drugs is really making a difference and the spiritual insights that are experienced from psychedelics. The psychedelics help by dissolving your sense of self, connecting you to the larger world, and then that does seem for people often to be a transcendence of time and space. You see death differently and you realize how we're all one. I'm Sarah Grimberg, and this is A Life of Greatness. Working as a podcast and radio producer, I have been fortunate enough to cross paths with many intriguing people who have had a profound impact on me. In this series, I share stories and experiences from the people who have brought inspiration to my life, and hopefully yours too. Today's conversation traverses many realms, ones you may never have thought about before. I ask you to keep an open mind and listen to what is possible. My hope is that Rick's words inspire you to find your own truth and believe that there are other possibilities out there. We just need to be willing to accept them. Rick Doblin, you are the founder and executive director of the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, which is on a mission to create safe and legal opportunities for the use of psychedelics in society. This is a topic that I've wanted to talk about with someone for such a long time, and you are the perfect person, obviously, to speak about this with. But what I want to know, Rick, is how did you get into this line of work? Well, so I'm glad to share this with you. Um, so it starts, I actually got into this line of work in 1972 when I was 18 years old. So it's been 49 years ago is when I first got into this. And it was really for political reasons. So my parents were very um, left-wing progressive people, very much about social justice and I was educated, I was born in 53, I'm Jewish, and so a big part of my early education was about the Holocaust. Yeah. I have loads of relatives in Israel, distant relatives killed by the Nazis, and I was just uh, taught about how that happened. And that just made me think humans are, um, in groups, are not really rational, they're not really sane, they're not compassionate, that... There's an incredible quote, well, that I'll I'll read to you from Carl Jung. And so this was something that um, Jung said um, a few years before he died. So this is a quote. Um, We need more psychology. We need more understanding of human nature because the only real danger that exists is man himself. He is the great danger and we are pitifully unaware of it. We know nothing of man, far too little. His psyche should be studied because we are the origin of all coming evil. 
So this is Carl Jung, the psychiatrist, not that long after World War II. So I was raised about the Holocaust. Then I was a young boy during the Cuban Missile Crisis when, you know, we were taught in school, if there's a nuclear explosion, a war with Russia, just hide under your desk and they call it duck and cover. And, you know, that was terrifying because we weren't really thinking we would survive. You know, but now it wasn't just the Germans trying to kill the Jews or the Germans trying to take over the world. Now it's about the U.S. and Russia trying to potentially blow up the world. And then the final step for me politically was this whole idea of Vietnam. And so I was um, in the last year of Vietnam, I was a draft resistor and I was uh, anticipating going to jail And I just thought, it's a crazy world. I mean, this is absolutely a crazy world. People are nuts. You know, as a group, we're like um, lemmings going over the cliff. We're destroying the environment. Um, There was a book I read when I was little, just to say this, because you're in Australia, was uh, On the Beach. Do you know that book, On the Beach? Yeah. It's about about how, it was in the 60s. So it's a book about how there's a nuclear war and Australia is the last place where the radioactive cloud is going to come. So it's how a bunch of people in Australia are preparing for the imminent destruction of the human race. And they're the last ones alive. So On the Beach was the name of the book. Um, But I I just was convinced that um, the world was a crazy place. And my parents were saying that it was my obligation to do something about it. So it was really good. And they were saying that... um, my grandparents on one side, uh, great-grandparents on another were refugees, came to the United States from Russia and Poland, um, eventually made a success in America. And so I was this multi-generational line where I had the luxury and the freedom to work on sort of deeper threats. So you, you can think about all the wealthy people that were on the Titanic when it goes down. You know, you can have all the money in the world, and if the world outside of you is is blowing up or destroyed, you know, you're not going to survive. So I was just really trained to do something about it. And then I also believed all the propaganda about LSD. I thought that if you took it five or six times, you were certifiably insane. I thought about, I I thought that if you took it, it affected your chromosomes and you would have deformed babies. Um, and, And just to show you how powerful that thought was, 1989 was the first date I had with my wife. We've been married since 1993, but on our first date, which was lunch, um, And it wasn't really a date. We were just in a class at school. We're going to talk about it. But she was just saying, you know, I would never really go out with you in any serious way because you've done all these drugs. And if we were to ever have babies, they would be like giraffes. They would have all this chromosome damage. And uh, so our family joke is, I said, let me defend my sperm. (laughs) It's not true what you said. But I believed all this stuff. And um, what was... um, the case for me was I, I was in I was studying Russian. I was in high school studying about Russia and learning about the other. And a friend of mine gave me this book to read, and I loved it. I read this book, and I handed it back to him. And he said, do you know that the author wrote some of that while he was under the influence of LSD? And I said, that's impossible. You know, LSD is so terrible. It's hallucination. It's delusions. And he said, no, check it out. And it turned out he was right. And it was One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest by Ken Kesey. And it was written, part of it, while he was under the influence of LSD. So that made me question everything. And then I said, I'm going to try LSD. So my first time trying LSD, um, it opened me up to my emotions, which I'd been more cognitive, 
thoughtful. And so I'm like, wow, what are these things, the emotions? <laughs> you know? um, but it also helped me um, ask these kind of existential questions about where am I, who am I, what's my purpose? And, and then I felt this um, sense of connection a, a little bit, you know, not like a full mystical experience or anything, but just that there's a bigger world beyond me. You know, you, you tend to think the, the way in the medieval days, they thought the earth was the center of the universe. We kind of all think that we individually are yes. the center of the universe. And so the LSD yeah. kind of makes you think maybe I'm not the center of the universe. <laughs> maybe I'm just this tiny speck on this enormous thing. Um, and, and I thought that that sense that we're part of something bigger than ourselves, that we're all together in this thing, that that had important political implications. And that, that's how I got into this, because yeah. I thought if you're part of everything, how can you say these group of people are not really humans and we're going to kill them? Or how can you mm. say the environment isn't really part of me? I'm going to trash the environment. I thought that yeah. psychedelics were um, help people feel connected. And that's what I saw with the 60s was when I started looking at it, this was 72, but I looked back, the 60s had crashed and burned. Nixon was president. Psychedelic research was wiped out around the world. But it was because a lot of the people in the 60s did LSD and then said, why are we going to go fight in Vietnam? You know, they're not that. So I, I and, and let's work on the women's rights movement. Let's work on civil rights. Let's work on the environmental. So it was psychedelics motivating people through the sense of connection to get more involved in challenging the status quo. And I saw that. So I, I got into it initially for political reasons. You said in the 1950s and 60s, the psychedelic research obviously flourished for a while all around the world to help with mental health issues and also to enhance mystical experiences. What happened? Why did all of that research stop? Well, there's a very simple answer, which is that um, it stopped for political reasons. Um, So there's a quote from... um, President Nixon, who was elected in 68, 1968, re-elected in 1972, um, he said his domestic policy advisor, this guy named John Ehrlichman, and this was an interview in the late 70s, and he said that the two main enemies that Nixon had were the civil rights movement and the hippies, and that the hippies were protesting Vietnam, and they were challenging him in all these different ways, and he said, um, so... We couldn't go after them for expressing their views because that's presumably freedom of speech, but we could target the drugs that they used and we could try to arrest their leaders and put their leaders in jail and criminalize their meetings and all of that. And the quote was, and did we know we were exaggerating the risks of drugs? Of course we did. So the research was stopped because of the counterculture. Drugs were, psychedelics got connected up with the counterculture, with protests, And so to stop the protests and try to weaken the counterculture, the drugs were made illegal. Now, there were people having bad experiences. So we we talked about this before. There was some people take these drugs and they're too scary or they have emotional breakdowns. And so there were those tragedies that were happening or bad experiences. And so the normal story now about why the backlash happened is psychedelics went wrong. People took it, they weren't prepared, they had bad outcomes, and society criminalized these drugs in order to prevent drug abuse. So I think that's a cover story. That's not at all true. I mean, the real reason is that psychedelics went right. People got inspired by their psychedelic experiences. They decided to build a better world. 
and that caused problems with the, the leadership. And so that's why they were, because yeah. if it was just about stopping drug abuse, why would you stop all the research for almost 30 years? Because yeah. the research got in the way of the drug war. The drug war is based on exaggerating the risks of drugs and trying to prevent any information about the benefits. So, you know, for a long time, we had to struggle this with MDMA. The National Institute on Drug Abuse spent so much money trying to say that MDMA was neurotoxic. You take one dose, permanent brain damage, major functional consequences. It was an enormous exaggeration. But the research gets in the way of these scare stories. And so that's why, so the political reasons were shut down this thing, criminalize it, and then block the research as well. Obviously, there are so many good reasons for taking these these kind of drugs and in an environment where you're getting the right dosage and it's pure and all that kind of stuff, and we'll go into that. But I've seen with my own eyes friends who have family members who have taken drugs and they yeah. end up like in mental hospitals. And it's not just a one or two, like there, there has been quite a few. So what I want to know, Rick, is like, what is the difference? How come some people are affected like that and then some people have these amazing experiences and they can flourish and move on with their lives and it can even get rid of a lot of their their mental anguish that they're having? Well, you know, there, there's kind of something that Timothy Leary talked about, which was um, it's about the set and the setting. So the set means your mental set, what you bring to it. So the classic psychedelics are challenging. They, they dissolve your sense of self. They, people sometimes confuse that with physically dying. As you're lo- losing your sense of ego identification, people often say, I'm dying. I can't let go. You know, I'm, I'm disappearing. I'm going to die. Um, then the setting yeah. is whether you're in a safe place to open up to the experiences. So I think one of the problems recreationally is people do these drugs in order to have a good time, in order to have fun. But when difficult stuff comes up, and it sometimes does, because you're, you're, you're taking this, um, you could say at night we all dream, and the, the difference between our conscious and our unconscious mind, there's like a membrane, and when you're dreaming, more of this stuff comes up. And psychedelics do the same thing. Stan Groff, uh, the psychiatrist, the world's leading LSD rate researcher, has said that um, LSD is a non-specific amplifier of the unconscious. So yes. people who are more or less, you know, happy or healthy, they can take these drugs. And But even them, if they take it in a setting where they don't feel safe, where they are just trying to have one slice of experience happy, but they, you know, deny or repress sad feelings. So, you know, for example, um, there's a lot of reasons to be sad. You know, we, we can just think about what's happening with the environment, what's happening with the wars. You, you don't have to be sad for yourself, but there's sadness in the world. And if you think about the world and you're saying, I'm here just to have fun, and here's this sadness coming over me, and I don't want to deal with it, and you push it down, you could be worse for months or years later. You've kind of brought something to the surface yeah. to be metabolized, to be addressed, but if you don't address it. So I think some of those same people that you're talking about that took psychedelics in this, in whatever context they did and had um, difficult experiences and had to go to the hospital, had a psychotic break. Um, yeah. 
part of it, well, I, I, that can happen with pure drugs. But, but so one difference is, you know, do people have pure drugs or not? If you're worried that you're going to get arrested, you take these experiences, you take these drugs, you have these experiences, if it's in an illegal context and you're starting to lose control, then you can get paranoia. The, the police are going to see me. I'm going to get arrested. My family, my parents, my job, I'm going to lose all that. So the context of prohibition and the fear of criminal prosecution makes drug experiences more dangerous. So the whole yeah. context, the setting is difficult. The other is that psychiatrists and psychotherapists, a lot of them, particularly 20, 30 years ago, they didn't understand about psychedelics. So somebody has a difficult experience, they're quick, they go to the emergency room, like I'm scared I'm dying, I'm, I'm panicking, I'm losing my sense of self. You know, you don't get support, you don't get kind support. They're like, oh my God, we got to tranquilize you. Let's give you a diagnosis. Now you got to, let's hospitalize you. Um, so that the psychiatry and psychotherapy can actually make it worse by diagnosing people. Um, in the future, when people have a difficult experience with LSD or psilocybin, I think uh, giving them MDMA would be the best thing because then it, it cuts the yeah. fear, they can process it. So I, I think that some people will have um, difficult experience. Now we work in therapy with people that are suffering, that have PTSD, that have depression, that have anxiety or um, life-threatening illness, scared of dying. So it's not that these drugs are only for healthy people. We are able to work with people that yeah. are mentally suffering but in a safe, supportive container with pure drugs, they can get better, not worse. You are the founder and executive director of MAPS. Can you tell us a bit about the work that you do there? So um, I just described um, sort of how I got into this in 1972. 1982, 10 years after that is when I first tried MDMA. And I just... Um, thought how incredible it was. You know, I did it with my girlfriend. It was just so open and loving and honest and listening. And it was fantastic. And I thought this really is something different. And it's also very similar to normal processing. So it's easier to integrate, easier to learn from than the classic psychedelics and very profound. So, and it was legal when I learned about it in 82. And so I started getting politically involved because this was during Nancy Reagan and Ronald Reagan and just say no and say no to drugs. And, and while it was used in therapy, it was also becoming ecstasy and used in public settings. So I decided that um, I would work with others and we would try to get uh, together a group that would prepare ahead of time for when the Drug Enforcement Administration tried to criminalize it. And so we were able to do that. Um, and then summer of 84, DEA tried to criminalize MDMA. And I went to DC, filed for a hearing. We had a hearing. We were winning the hearing. And the, the DEA um, got freaked out because they were we had great press, psychiatrists, psychotherapists, monks, rabbis, all these people talking about great MDMA experiences. And we were winning in the court. We were able to say that FDA, I mean, DEA was overreaching. There was a lot of evidence for, for therapeutic use. So the DEA emergency scheduled MDMA in 85. We eventually won the hearing. The judge said it should be schedule three, which means available for medicine. But the head of the DEA rejected the recommendation. So I realized that the only way to bring this back to legality was to create a nonprofit pharmaceutical company. So that is MAPS. And I created that in 86. Yeah. 
35 years ago. And so we now are 130 people at MAPS. About two thirds are in our pharmaceutical development arm and one third are in the nonprofit that does public advocacy, uh, peer support, psychedelic harm reduction, um, all, all sorts of um, operational stuff. And so what I do is uh, try to mostly um, do public education, which is what we're doing now. Um, I do a lot of fundraising. So in our 35 years, we've raised $110 million in donations. Wow. Yeah, and that's, so all 130 people are supported by donations. So we got to keep raising lots of money. But I also work on uh, regulatory affairs. So I got my PhD at the Kennedy School of Government uh, at Harvard, and my dissertation was on the regulation of the medical use of psychedelics and marijuana. So I do a fair amount of political work with regulatory agencies and also, what I'm doing now is trying to globalize um, our efforts. So I spend a lot of time talking to people in Australia because there are various different groups that are interested in bringing um, MDMA, psilocybin, psychedelic research to Australia. But I've also been talking to people in Armenia, in Bosnia, in South Africa, in Rwanda. So I'm um, pretty busy and um, trying to really build the organization and try to help us over the next couple of years, which is now our biggest challenge because we've just uh, succeeded in our first phase three study, which is you need two of them to make a drug into a medicine. And so we got two more years to go of our second phase three study and negotiating with FDA. So um, what I try to do is clear out bureaucratic um, regulatory and financial obstacles from the mainstreaming of psychedelics. But, but, but in the process, what I've discovered to my horror is that I've created my own bureaucracy. So we've got maps and we've got all these like um, SOP, standard operating procedures. And we have all of these. So I'm like, how did we do that? How come I can't do this? Why do I have to ask for six people's permission? So I'm struggling against our own bureaucracy as, as well as bureaucracy in the world. <laughs> Hilarious. Can you tell us a bit about at MAPS, how you help trauma victims, you know, especially there's a lot of emphasis put on people that have PTSD. And you, yeah. I know that you use MDMA to help a lot of these people. Yeah. Okay. So um, we are the only company right now that has psychedelic assisted psychotherapy in phase three. And we had to do a big strategic discussion. This is now 35 years ago, but what drug and what condition? Yes. And in 1984, I did work with a PTSD patient and saw that it helped her with MDMA and also with the LSD-MDMA combination. And so I knew that MDMA for PTSD is terrific combination. So we have a three and a half month therapeutic process. The, the first thing to say is that um, a lot of people are traumatized, but only a fraction of them get PTSD. So people are able to be resilient, to, to heal from trauma a lot, but some people aren't able to do that. And it's often the case, but not always the case, that they've had difficult experiences in childhood. So that when they have trauma in their adulthood, they have a hard time getting over it because they're also wounded from early on in childhood. Now, again, it's not always the way, but so 
What I mean is, where this is going is that we have a two-person therapy team, often a male-female. That's our preferred model, is a male-female team. And of course, we're open to all genders and non-genders and, you know, two female, two, whatever. But it's basically this idea that a lot of people, when they do MDMA, they talk about all their traumas and a lot of them go to childhood and you have this healthy male female relationship with a therapist, which they might not have had when they were younger. So it's um, three and a half months treatment. It's 42 hours of therapy. And the way that's set up is it's three, eight hour sessions with MDMA and with they're about a month apart. And then it's 12 90 minute non-drug psychotherapy sessions, three, more or less once a week before the first MDMA session to build the therapeutic alliance, to get people to know each other and to prepare people for the MDMA. Then there's three of these 90-minute sessions after each MDMA session to help people integrate it and think about what happened and try to um, learn how to process trauma on their own in a way to heal themselves, to, to be able to learn this process that it's not so overwhelming. You, you don't have to keep suppressing it because the thing about PTSD is that it never, the trauma is never really fully in the past. It's always about to happen. It's yeah. always reminded people of it. Um, so you, you want to help them process it. So it's three day long MDMA sessions and 12 90 minute psychotherapy sessions and our therapeutic method, which is, um, our, what we've done is it's called a treatment manual that describes our therapeutic approach. And so people go, go to maps.org, our website, and go to research and MDMA. At the bottom of that page is our treatment manual. But the essence of it is that we believe that we all know that, that if your body gets wounded, there's a wisdom of the body to heal itself. Mm. You know, there's limits. If you lose a leg, you're not going to regrow a leg. But yeah. if you get a big wound or a cut or all different things, our body heals itself below our level of conscious awareness. And so we believe there's something similar for the psyche and that when you give somebody a psychedelic, there's this emergence into awareness of different feelings and thoughts, body sensations, all of that. And there's a wisdom to the order that things come up. That's, so we don't, we're not the guide. We don't use the word guides. Therapists are not the guides. Each person is their own guide. Mm-hmm. So the best example is a midwife. We're like the midwife. The, the patient has to do the hard work. We're trying to empower them to heal themselves. We can be reassuring. We can give some advice. We've seen this before. We've seen that before. But basically, we call it inner-directed therapy. Yeah. And people um, are eight hours in a therapy session. They're listening to music. They're having um, headphones on. They're having eye shades. About half the time they're inner focused, the other half the time they're in dialogue with the therapist, but no particular order and it varies with each person or each session. And we kind of support what's happening to people. Uh, uh, There's a a terrific documentary that if people want to watch it called Trip of Compassion Mm -hmm. and it's on Vimeo, it's about four or five bucks, Trip of Compassion. It's the best documentary ever made about the therapeutic use of MDMA. And it's made with three of our Israeli patients. So some of it's in Israel, I mean, in Hebrew, I mean, with English subtitles, some of it's in English. And you get a real good sense of what's happening. But the basic idea is to let the symptoms out. That is, this is not about um, suppressing symptoms. 
This is about supporting people to let the feelings out. And, and sometimes people will be screaming or raging or, or, or shaking. When you're traumatized or some attack is happening or something like that, you're more focused on survival. How do you get out of it? You suppress your emotions. And then later you kind of have often people dissociate. So the dissociative syndrome is pop, very common in PTSD. So you have to help people get back into their body, into their memories, release the feelings. And so it, some of it is rational, verbal. Some of it is just irrational, letting out the emotions, but we support what's emerging. And that's where we get to the root core of the problem. So that's the basic treatment approach. How important is getting the right dosage? A lot less important than getting the right therapist mm. and getting the right setting. Yes. So, um, there is um, what I would call pseudoscience, fake science, science so that part of it has been people thought the way you get the right dosage is you do milligram per kilogram dosage. You, you take body weight and then you give people a certain amount for how much they weigh. But what we found is that there's a wider variation of subjective effects than when you dose based on body weight than when you just have fixed dosing. Because people's body weights differ, but also it's about muscle mass, fat, different kinds of bones, different things absorb chemicals at different rates. So it's, body weight is really not a good way to dose people. And that's not the way people take psychiatric medicines. It's not based on body weight. You kind of find the right dose by experimenting with it. So the difference between um, 75 milligrams and 100 milligrams is, is not that much. Mm. Um, so if it's 75 milligrams or 85 milligrams, you know, our standard dose, the first session we have is 80 milligrams followed two hours later by 40 milligrams in order to extend this therapeutic plateau yes. so that it's an eight hour session. The second session for almost everybody is 120 milligrams followed by 60, two hours later. We have gone up to 150 milligrams in our study. So we've gone down to 25 milligrams. So the right dose is not, it's, it does matter. I mean, if you have 30 or 40 milligrams, we find that makes people uncomfortable. They're activated. They, they don't have the fear reduction. They can still get better with the therapy, but not as much as if they've had no MDMA at all and yeah. just had therapy. Yeah. So that certain lower doses make the therapy less effective. And then the higher doses make the therapy way more effective. Yeah. So the dose is not that crucial of a factor. Does everyone walk out of these tests better? No, no. So, you know, nothing works for everybody. Um, luckily, we haven't had anybody who received MDMA in our therapy try to commit suicide. Yeah. Um, you know, we're, we felt that because MDMA has been stigmatized and there's a lot of problems about drugs and psychedelics and fears that culture has, we felt that we had to work with the hardest case. So we enroll people that have previously attempted suicide. Yeah. We worked with severe PTSD. We, we had people that had PTSD an average of 14 years in our study. Some of them, one third of them had PTSD more than 20 years. Mm. A lot of the ones that had it recently, less than that, were um, Iraq and Afghanistan war veterans. And that wasn't that far ago, long ago. Um, but what, what we've been able to um, 
really demonstrate is that um, no matter how long you've had PTSD, no matter the cause of PTSD, that this therapy can help people um, process it. But what we showed is two-thirds of the people who had MDMA at the two-month follow-up no longer had PTSD. And around um, almost nine out of 10 of of the rest, one-third, most of them had clinically significant reductions of PTSD symptoms, even though they still have PTSD. But there is a group that doesn't get better. But we we don't really think that people have gotten worse. Um, there, There may be some that... You know, you could have a difficult balance in your life that you've been traumatized. It's, you know, your strategies are not working for you, but you can kind of cope and you're on SSRIs and they reduce the symptoms. We require people to taper off of all their psychiatric medicines before we get into the study because it blunts the effect of MDMA. Yeah. So there was one woman that was in our study that attempted to kill herself twice during the study. And there was another woman that had such strong suicidal ideation that she checked herself into a hospital to avoid killing herself. And as it turned out at the end of the study, we uncovered the blind and both of those women were in the control group, not the MDMA group, meaning they got the therapy without the MDMA. So these are people that are struggling seriously with trauma. We took them off their medicines. They, They are disappointed they're not getting MDMA. They'll have to wait a year or so to get MDMA to go through it again, and and they were in despair. So we don't know yet how to predict ahead of time who's likely to respond and who is not likely to respond. Yeah. But it it definitely does not work for everybody, and people have to be willing. So to to give you an example of, I'll I'll tell you a story of one person it didn't work for. Um, There was a person in our study who had just gotten out of jail for murder, and he wanted to work on his PTSD in the study. And there was very few of our therapists felt safe enough working for this guy. But it turned out that he was um, in jail for murder of his father. He killed his father. But his father had sexually, physically abused him from childhood on. And when he was older, they had a fight and the, um, the father had a gun and um, they struggled over the gun. And then the, the kid got the drug a gun. And then, um, accidentally shot and killed his father. And so that was his whole defense that this was an accident. And so he was able to, he went to jail for murder, but eventually he got out. So under the influence of MDMA, um, he started asking himself these questions. I mean, again, this is a horrible situation, a horrible life, but he started wondering, was it really an accident? Mm. Now his whole freedom was based on this was an accident. That wasn't an intentional murder. But he said, maybe I, you know, part of me did want to kill mm. my father. And, and when I aimed it, maybe it was not completely an accident. And that was so terrifying to him, that thought, mm. that he said, I don't want to continue with therapy anymore. Now, this was because he's in a protocol that takes place where you have to have three MDMA sessions, three to five weeks apart. If this was post-approval treatment, we could have said to him, you don't have to do the next one a month from now. Just, you know, sit with what you've just been thinking and what you've been through. So maybe he would have come back four or five months later and said, now I'm ready for a second session. I've kind of addressed this. 
Um, but, but that's just one example of somebody it didn't yeah. work for. Psilocybin came to my attention because one of my most beloved spiritual teachers, Ram Dass, took it and said that it opened him up to the mystical. How do people achieve mystical experiences through drugs? Well, um, to give you kind of a very simplistic uh, neuroscience perspective from, from what I understand, there's a, um, there's a, a network in the brain called the default mode network. So default mode means that's what you sort of go to when nothing else is happening. And that's more or less equivalent to our sense of self of who we are as an individual. And you're sort of default mode means, okay, I just finished this. Now what's the next thing that I'm going to work on? You know, what are my needs? What, what do I need to do? And you scan the environment and you think about, you know, what you're going to do next. What, what the classic psychedelics, but not MDMA, but like LSD or psilocybin, what they do is they weaken the activity in this default mode network, which means that your sense of self, of who you are, is weakened. And we are taking in so much information at any moment through all of our senses, but we're not paying attention to all of it. You know, we, we pay attention to new things, to novelty but also to what we think is really important for us. And we ignore a lot of things. You know, like right now there's the humming of my computer in the background, but I'm not paying attention to it because yeah. we're having this conversation. Yeah. So awareness a lot of times is about narrowing your focus of attention. And that's what the default mode network does on, on what, yourself, what your self needs are. When that part is weakened, then you're, realizing there's all sorts of information coming into you from your senses, from your, that you haven't been paying attention to. Even people, synesthesia, talk about they see colors or they, you know, they can, um, music has shapes and things. Um, so this idea that um, you're no longer looking at yourself from this egocentric perspective and then you start realizing how everything is connected, how it's a big world, we're just a small part of it. And so the essence of the mystical experience is called the unitive state. It's either, um, it's a sense of unity from everything in the world or from um, with your eyes closed, this kind of, or, or your eyes open with things that you see. So we know from certain quantum physics, you know, things are, are energies, we're all connected, you know, but, but we don't think that way. So psychedelics, or meditation, other ways you can have mystical experiences. It's not just yeah. from psychedelics. You know, sometimes people have what they call gratuitous grace, where they just, it's like it falls upon them, this mystical experience. But it's the sense of connection, of a deeply felt positive mood, a transcendence mm. of time and space, a sense of being in the presence of objective reality, a sense of something kind of spiritual or holy. And these are human experiences that we can access in many different ways. But psychedelics have been for thousands of years one of the most effective ways and the most rapid ways to do that. You know, you need meditation or other techniques to kind of anchor it so that you're there more of the time. Yeah. That's what Ramdas said. You know, but but the psychedelics help by dissolving your sense of self 
connecting you to the larger world. And then that does seem for people often to be a transcendence of time and space. You see death differently and you realize um, how we're all one. Yeah. And so that, that's how it works. Ayahuasca is obviously a drug or they call it the medicine that has gained a lot of attention in the spiritual world quite recently. I mean, it's been around for many years, but it's, it's, it's gained a lot, of, a lot of attention in the spotlight of late. Have you done a lot of work with that? And what are, what are the positives of taking something like that? Um, I've done a bunch of ayahuasca. Um, MAPS has not done a lot of work on ayahuasca. Um, there is a member of our board of directors, a woman named Victoria Hale, and she's interested in making ayahuasca into a medicine. Um, she previously started two um, nonprofit pharma companies. Um, one, she got uh, like $180 million from the Gates Foundation. This was drugs for parasites for India and elsewhere. Then she got about $80 million from the Buffett family, Warren Buffett's first wife, to develop low-cost contraceptives for the Since that point in time, she's had some ayahuasca experiences. And so she would be interested in uh, making ayahuasca into a medicine. Um, it's difficult to do because she wants to do it in the, the form that it's used traditionally, which is in the form of a tea. So to do FDA drug development research, you have to have a standardized supply that's stable so that you know you're always giving people the same thing. So that's been years, trying to get a standardized supply. There is a way where people have done freeze-dried encapsulated ayahuasca, where you have the tea, you freeze-dry it. Um, you can make sure that it has the same amounts of DMT and harmaline in it so that it's active, and then you can put it in capsules and you can swallow it. But uh, uh, Victoria Hale is who's on our board. She doesn't want to do that. She wants to do it in the traditional form. Um, th there's also some concerns that um, I don't share, but there's this sense that um, ayahuasca came from the Amazon and it's these indigenous people that are using it. And therefore, there's something wrong about Western people using it in a different way. You know, not using it in the religious use that's been developed in South America. Um, so I don't share that view. I, I think that it's part of the the world. You know, they definitely, it was discovered in South America. You know, there's different psychedelics all over the place. There's different psychedelics in Australia that don't appear anywhere else. There's, you know, um, Ibogaine, which is an uh, incredible drug for helping people through opiate addiction. It's from Gabon, from Western Africa. You know, there's psychedelic mushrooms all over the place. So ayahuasca has a lot of therapeutic potential. It, it's really pretty terrific. And it's, um, mostly being used in religious spiritual settings, but I think it would be appropriate to do religious, I mean, to do scientific work. And in fact, there's been an incredible study in Brazil, in Sao Paulo, giving ayahuasca to people for depression. Wow. And they did it in the hospital without any ceremonies. Even yes. in Brazil, they said, okay, now we're in the hospital. This is just a drug. Let's see what happens. They used it like LSD, but just supportive psychotherapy, not religious rituals. And they showed great results for reduction of depression. So one day maybe we'll figure out how to make a standardized supply or freeze-dried encapsulated. So I, I think ayahuasca has um, 
changed a lot of people's attitudes yes. and a lot of people. It's, it's, it, yeah, it has spread widely. And, and one question is, how come there's very little police suppression of ayahuasca circles? Mm. You know, I, I think um, part of the reason in America is that we're having an enormous uh, crisis of people overdosing on opiates. So if the police are going after ayahuasca where people are not really complaining, you know, we don't have a lot of psychotic breaks, people are talking about benefits, they get under a lot of criticism. Why are you going after ayahuasca when we've got all these people dying from opiates and fentanyl? Yeah. So, so it's pretty much flourishing. Is it that way in Australia? There's not much... Um, I, I'm pretty sure it's illegal here, but I, yeah. I mean, I, I don't personally know, but I have had friends that have taken it and have had positive experiences. And I mean, they do it in a ceremony setting. I think the stuff here is a bit underground, but mm. still around. Okay, because what we've had in the U.S. is we've had a U.S. Supreme Court case yes. about the Unyao de Vegetal, the UDV, and the Supreme Court said they have the right to religious freedom and to use ayahuasca. But most of the ayahuasca circles in America are not, in those in that religious setting, yes. they're sort of spiritual, yes. but they're technically illegal. But they're they're not being um, shut down. Yes. What's the difference between ayahuasca, psilocybin, MDMA? How do these drugs vary? Um, well, I would put um, ayahuasca and psilocybin and LSD and ibogaine in one class. We'll call them like the classic psychedelics. Yes. And and MDMA is in a different class. So. What the classic psychedelics do is this weakening of the default mode network and they open up to, you know, repressed memories or, or things come to the surface um, and people have these um, spiritual experiences, but they also have catharsis. They can let out their emotions. Um, the classic psychedelics are um, more dangerous psychologically than MDMA. Yeah but they're safer physically. So that what, it, what I mean by the classic psychedelics, um, their danger is that you are losing your point of reference. Now, people are talking about microdosing or lower doses. You know, you eat a few mushrooms, this isn't going to happen. But you take a bunch and the amounts that used in therapy are really large amounts. Yeah. So that you, you need support. You're losing sense. There's an album, uh, a music album from the 1960s um, that is a lot about, you know, the psychedelic 60s and that it's by David Crosby and the name of the album is If I Could Only Remember My Name. So that that's what happens when you do these classic psychedelics. Like, yeah. who am I? I can't even speak, you know. So they, they work by stimulating the serotonin 5-HT2A receptor site. We You know, but what does that really tell us? But, yeah. but you know, all right. So MDMA acts in a different way. It doesn't really reduce our sense of self. What it does is it reduces uh, our fear response to difficult emotions. So it reduces activity in the amygdala. It, it reduces our fear response. It, it builds, um, it releases oxytocin, which is the hormone of uh, nursing mothers, of love and connection. Mm -hmm. So you, you feel connected to yourself. You feel self-love. You feel self-acceptance, you're fine as you are, it quiets your mind, kind of like meditation. And it also makes you more empathic and more wanting social connections and you can listen better. 
So it's, it's deep and profound in a different way than the classic psychedelics. You have been using psychedelic therapy to help with the Israel and Palestinian situation. Yeah. Can you talk to us a bit about that? Yeah, well, you know, given the fact that there's um, missiles and war and violence going on, you can see we haven't had a big effect. Um, so there are some small groups of Israelis and Palestinians that are doing ayahuasca and MDMA together as a way to try to get over the fear of the other and to see people as humans. And so once we learned that that was happening, we thought this is something important. Because I, I do believe that. I said I got into psychedelics for political reasons. That, and this is an example of that. So we, we raised money for a three-year project. It's with Lior Roseman and Robin Card Harris at Imperial College. The first year was interviewing people about why they did it and what, what they learned from it. The second and third year is going to be to take groups of Israelis and Palestinians to Spain and, and then give them an ayahuasca experience and then measure their attitudes for each other before and after and other kind of scientific me measurements. But there, there was one quote that was from the interview study that gives an example of this. And it was from an Israeli. And what he said was that um, during the ayahuasca experience, a lot of times people will sing, but they also played some music. And so what they played was an Arabic song. And this Israeli said that under the influence of ayahuasca, he normally when he heard Arabic songs, he would be scared. You know, this is from the other, this is not good. Why, you know, am I around there? Am I in danger? But under the influence of ayahuasca, he heard this Arabic song and he saw the beauty in it. And he could really see that, um, that there was something special that he, he could let himself go and listen to this Arabic song. And then he said, it brought him to a place where it's not like we're Jews and we're Arabs or we're Muslims or, you know, we're, we're Israelis or anything. We're all one thing. We're all together and I can enjoy Arabic music. And so that's a small story of what we hope to do eventually with millions and millions of people. Wonderful. Rick, what is the most mystical experience you have ever had? Well, um, I'm happy to uh, answer that question. It has it happens, despite the fact that I've done LSD over 100 times, loads of uh, mescaline, other things. The most mystical experience of my life was actually under the influence of MDMA. And um, I'd been talking to you about uh, Brother David Steindelrost, who was a Roman Catholic monk who did experiment with MDMA in the monastery in the 80s. Um, and so I, I took MDMA all by myself at night, camped out on the edge of the Pacific Ocean. And... I was thinking, why would somebody want to be a monk? You know, why, why would you want to be celibate? What would be the point of, what was his life like as a monk? Um, and so that was a lot of what I was thinking about, camping out, doing MDMA all by myself. And at one point, um, I just was aware of how enormous the sky was. You know, just because this is Big Sur, California. This is three hours south of San Francisco. There's no big cities. The sky is incredible. And then I was like how enormous the roaring of the waves in the ocean was. Just the, and, and I just felt like I, I'm dissolving into this enormous universe. And so that was this kind of beautiful mystical experience. But then I had this thought, um, why am I still here? You know, if, if it's such an enormous, where, where I'm, I'm on the edge of a, a 
planet that's spinning super fast and we're in, you know, this big cosmos. Why am I not just flying off into the universe? Why am I not just disappearing completely? And after a while, I thought, well, it's because of gravity. That gravity is, is sort of keeping me here. And then I felt gravity was a force of love. Mm. And then I had the image of gravity that I was in the arms of a lover that I was cradled in the arms of gravity. And, and then I felt this was um, love, not from a particular individual, but it was like love woven into the structure of the universe. Yeah. And then I thought, this is great. This is why a monk, you know, that you don't have particular relationships. You kind of have love for everybody. Mm. And I thought, great, now I figured this out. Now I don't need to be celibate. <laughs> Um, but but that was the, the most mystical experience of my life, this cradled in the arms of gravity. And also, after that experience, um, I didn't feel lonely in the same ways that I had before then. I, I didn't have yeah. a lover at the time. I wasn't in a relationship. And it, it kind of cured loneliness because I felt that at any time I can just tap into this idea mm. of love in, as gravity. Now, 30 years after that experience... In uh, 2015, I was at a scientific conference, um, and Brother David was one of the speakers. It was a big conference on psychedelics. And we were sitting together at dinner, and I said, um, I just want to share with you this mystical experience that I had, the most mystical experience of my life, and it's connected to you. So I wonder what you think about it. Yes. And um, I, I told him this story, and I said, cradled in the arms of gravity, and, and he was quiet for a minute. And then he looked at me, and he said, and these were the first words he said, he said, I think about gravity every day. That's, that is bizarre. The beautiful, absolutely beautiful. Yeah. When you're touched by these mystical experiences, do you agree that life can never be the same again? I mean, this is not being on drugs, just going about your everyday, that once you have been opened up to this, things will always be different. Well, I wish that that were true. but And I think for many people it is true. Yeah. But it requires people to honor the experience, to work to integrate it. That, that people can deny things that have happened to them for whatever reasons. They get all stressed and, you know, they get depressed and then they forget. So I think that these mystical experiences do have the potential. And for most people, they do have lifelong lasting consequences in a good way. Mm. It's called the fruits test. If it was a true mystical experience, what are the fruits in your life? Oh, wow. But it's, it's not always the case. So in general, I would agree with you, but I would say that it requires a certain kind of um, intellectual, emotional, and spiritual honesty yeah. for people to hold on to that and to try to build on that. And yeah. you can lose it and lose your way. Mm. I mean, I was telling you offline that I've had some incredible mystical experiences all, all during meditation and they have changed my life for the better. I do not look at life the same ever again, but I'm also very consciously aware of spirituality and my thoughts and all this kind of stuff. So my integration is obviously quite deep, but it is interesting to hear your thoughts as well. Yeah. I mean, I think for me, as I said, that experience, I would never have been as lonely after that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I attribute it to that sense of there's always love just in the atmosphere, just around everything. Yeah. Um, 
you know, I also had very loving parents and a very, you know, nurturing childhood. So that helps me to feel that as well. What's the lesson that's taken you the longest to learn? Wow, that's a good question. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, I'm I'm sure, um, well, what my wife would say is that it's not all about me. Mm. (laughs) Um, Apparently, I haven't learned that lesson yet. (laughs) So uh, I'd say one of the things that's, I've done a good job of learning um, patience is the fastest way. Mm. That you can't push the river. That's you know you you kind of get all excited and you try to make things go faster than they normally will, and then yes. it screws it up and it goes slower. So patience is the fastest way. I think I know that. So the lesson that I've taken the longest to learn—that's such a good question. What's the thing that's taken you the longest to learn? That's a good question. It comes up a lot, and you just mentioned it. And I always, when people say it, I think that's about myself and. I mean, taken, it's taken the longest and I'm still learning is that the idea of in divine timing, which is to do with patience yeah. as well, rather than yeah. your timing, things will happen when they're meant to happen. And, and also the more that you push, the more it gets pushed away from you. So to kind of sit back and not hold on too tight, have the desire, but then let it go. That's really good. Um, I guess I, I have come up with an answer while you were sharing that. Yeah. And, and that is that to learn to respect the fears that people have. Yes. You know, so people will come to me and tell me, oh, yeah, I hate MDMA. It causes holes in your brain or stuff. And, and so I get impatient. Like, how could you possibly believe that? You know, or mm. other people are like, yeah, MDMA drains spinal fluid. I'm like, where did you hear that? But, but these are sort of common. So I, I'm not as... Um, bad about this as I used to be, but, but what I've learned is you have to validate people's fears before they'll listen yeah. to you about anything else. And mm. I think that's been hard for me. I'm kind of impatient and, but, but I'm trying, and that's part of diplomacy, you know, and, mm. and a lot of my work is diplomacy and, and negotiations with, right. So it's validating people's fears without getting impatient. Uh, I've yeah. got a lot of learning to go still there. Yeah. I think a sense of respect as well for everyone's yeah. opinion. Yeah. What, is your greatest hope for society today? Um, well, that we wake up and become um, spiritualized and stop killing each other and stop destroying the environment. That um, I think that'll happen in 2050. So, you know, we'll, we'll have, um, so, the, so our plan is MDMA becomes a medicine 2023 in the U.S., potentially also 2023 in Australia. Canada, wow. Israel, Europe will be a year or so behind that. Then psilocybin will be a year or two behind that. And then, then we have like a decade or so of um, thousands and thousands and thousands of psychedelic clinics. They're already happening on ketamine clinics for depression. Then you build MDMA, psilocybin. And then after we've had a decade or so, end the prohibition on drugs. Yeah. You know, we have legal access. So that'll be 2035. So then we have another 15 years to take us to 2050. And the hope is that people are healed from a lot of their trauma through which they have these perpetual enemies. They have been spiritualized enough to realize that we're all in it together. And we have the technology and the science to have enough food and shelter for everybody on the planet, to have the healthcare for everybody on the planet. Just think of how much money we put into military hardware. You know, so if people were 
spiritualized as a group, humanity, we could have enough for everybody and we wouldn't have to have war. So that my greatest hope is that um, whether through meditation or psychedelics or anything else, enough people get this mystical experience and, and validate it and believe in it, that, that we have as a culture, we move to a kind of spiritual society. And, you know, people have been more or less the same for like three, 4,000 years. And we haven't, so we need a vast cultural evolution to get us out from killing each other and from destroying the environment. So my greatest hope is that through the mystical experience and through therapy with psychedelics, we'll get there. What is a life of greatness to you? Well, I'll go back to uh, uh, Martin Luther King. What he said was, um, everybody can be great because everybody can serve. So a life of greatness is to recognize that you have to be true to yourself. You can't deny yourself, but that we're part of something bigger and that you try to serve the greater good. So for example, we have MAPS and then we have our pharmaceutical company, which is going to market MDMA, but it's called the MAPS Public Benefit Corporation. It's not a profit maximizing corporation. It maximizes public benefit, not profit. So that, that would be a life of greatness is where that you try to make yourself happy and healthy, but you also maximize public benefit. Rick Doblin, thank you so much for all the wonderful work that you're doing. You're an absolute pioneer in your field. Thank you for the beautiful <laughs> chat today. Thank you, Sarah. I look forward to it, and I look forward to all the progress we're going to make with psychedelics in Australia. For more inspiration and wisdom, I would love you to join me and my community on Instagram at a Life of Greatness podcast. To purchase my ebook Finding Greatness and watch videos on this and other episodes, head to sarahgrimberg.com. Love what you heard? Then we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and leave a five-star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others. A Life of Greatness's executive producer is me, Sarah Grimberg. Audio producers Matt Nikolic and Darcy Thompson. Special thanks to Grant Tothill for bringing this dream to life. For more episodes, search a Life of Greatness podcast. Download the new Listener app now and listen for free. Listener.